perspective thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. You alone have stood up to their guard. And what are you? Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Valtair Moore, gentlemen. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Phantom Galaxy, a genre podcast that serves as a crossroads for the intersecting universes of science fiction, fantasy, and horror in all of their many forms, whether that be movies, books, television shows, even video games. We'll discuss it all here on this podcast. And through it all, I'll be your host. My name is Nathan Bartlebaugh, previously a member of the Washington, D.C. Film Critics Association, was a film critic for many years, uh, writing for different publications, including the film stage. And I've also co-hosted podcasts, including this one back when it was pop culture ninja in 2016 and then it became the phantom galaxy for anyone who's listening to this who previously was a fan of the original phantom galaxy welcome back and for anyone who's new uh you are coming in at the right place because this is essentially a restart or recharge of of the show that uh, we ran until 2018 and then with young kids and life just sort of getting in the way podcast sort of took a hiatus and we thought it was a good time to bring it back like the previous iteration we will be discussing primarily uh, my wheelhouse is movies we'll be talking a lot about movies across the various genres of science fiction fantasy and horror but we'll also be discussing books we'll be discussing television and we'll have regular reviews i'm going back to a format where i have an episode where we pick a theme or some films to talk about and then we'll also have a weekly episode which is about 30 minutes that will be for capsule reviews of various things across the genres so we'll be trying to bring as much of this to you as you can, including interviews, uh, anything that's of interest within the genre or the community that surrounds the genre. And tonight, to kind of kick things off, I'll be joined by my very first uh, co-host on the show, a guest for this episode. His name is Bill Van Vegel. He's up from Canada, and he will be joining us to review a new Amazon Prime film that came out just a few weeks ago called The Vast of Night. Then we're going to have our very first segment of something I'll be calling VOD Roulette, where Bill and I each choose one movie for the other person to view that is from one of the genres, one of the streaming channels out there, whether it be Netflix, whether it's Shudder or Prime or Hulu, and then each of us take turns reviewing those movies. So we have a couple up tonight that are a lot of fun, and there's a little bit of a theme. We'll discuss that soon. And Bill comes to us from the Land of the Creeps podcast, which is a fantastic horror movie centric podcast if you're not familiar with it it was started up several years ago by greg morgan who continues to host it uh and co-hosts with bill and with dave dr shock becker who also has his own uh, website with dvdinfatuation.com an awesome resource go check it out and greg's an awesome guy and they have a great community over there land of the creeps you want to check them out on facebook their discussion board there is a really great community for people who are into horror movies and they are some of the friendliest people i've met on the internet so go over there check them out and also check out the land of the creeps at landofthecreeps.blogspot.com and now 
I will turn it over to myself and Bill as we discuss The Vast of Night. Bill, without any further ado, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you very much, Nathan, and I'm very excited to be on. Uh, I normally talk horror, but as you know from The Land of the Creeps and in my general talking, I do enjoy anything that's kind of in that genre. So sometimes sci-fi crosses over, sometimes fantasy, sometimes action, sometimes superhero. So I'm a fan of the entire swath. If you took a paintbrush and swathed it across, if it's good, if there's action, if there's horror, if there's blood, if there's some kind of indelible person involved, I will be watching. And that's kind of how I feel, too. I I really enjoy horror, and that's kind of how I connected with Bill, and is because of uh, our mutual love of horror. And horror is definitely something that's discussed and going to be discussed quite a bit here on this podcast. Science fiction was probably my first love, but it was interesting to see how those two, how often those two actually sort of intertwine, and that's certainly something we'll be looking at here. I think fantasy, too. Fantasy seems to be the genre that I find people that love sci-fi and they love horror, and they're a little more reticent about fantasy. Uh, usually with a horror fan, you can get them into dark fantasy um, I think definitely a lot of Clive Barker's work flows that way. They're some of my favorite science fiction movies are horror and, and vice versa. Sometimes people think fantasy and they think like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But as a teenager reading Stephen King, you get into the Dark Tower. And that's kind of the tipping point. And then you can go a lot of places that way. Yeah, they hear fantasy and you think the Dungeons and Dragons, that term of high fantasy. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of the things that's right in the middle between science fiction and fantasy. And then, of course, it's all satirical. So in a few moments, we're going to get started with our primary discussion, which is of a movie that came on Amazon Prime, I want to say, last weekend or two weekends ago, uh, called The Vast of Night. So we'll be discussing that. Then we're going to go into something that I'm hoping to be a regular feature of the show, uh, which is VOD Roulette. Uh, and, and Bill and I will probably be doing it back and forth for a bit in the beginning. I'm certainly happy to bring other people in as well. But what we'll be doing is uh, picking a movie kind of randomly for each other off of the very streaming uh, services. And one of the streaming services, I think recently this kind of come into play uh particularly i think for me i kind of ramped up being aware of it during this whole quarantine that we've been going through which is tubi which is a currently is a free streaming platform bill i know you've been really uh enjoying uh tubi as a kind of way to get into a lot of movies you've never heard of before yeah i i love tubi and if there's anybody listening that hasn't it's tubi tv just google it or use yahoo whatever you use and they literally have thousands and not just horror sci-fi any genre documentaries comedy rom-coms whatever you're into they got and you can get yourself into a pretty deep rabbit hole <laughs> and like this this uh, weekend i didn't really have anything on the go so i i play to be roulette where you type in a, a search word you find a movie and then you'll come up with thousands of suggestions well not thousands at a time but you'll come up with five to ten at a time and what i like to go in is to go into a movie blind and just kind of take your chances and i found some duds but i found some diamonds in the rough and then kind of some in between but even if you find one that isn't necessarily your favorite it can lead you to something that's your favorite so if you like vince vaughn there might be uh, the, uh, a Vince Vaughn movie that leads you to something that he co-starred in with somebody else that leads you to something else. Before you know it, you're five movies deep. You've lost 12 hours, but what a hell of a ride that was. <laughs> right. And, and Bill, one of the things I appreciate about you, you kind of have that people probably remember the Life Serial commercials from back in the day. You know, the Mikey, he, he, he'll he try anything. And Bill, you're kind of movie-wise, I kind of think of you like that. You are willing to try just about anything and give it the opportunity to, to entertain you. And I think what I also appreciate is that you'll take it on its own terms, right? You will go into a movie, and I know a lot of people that watch a ton of different things, but they'll hold 
the thing they watched, you know, the whole the B movie from 1952 made on a budget of 50,000 some dollars to the same standards as, you know, Citizen Kane or something or 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, so does anyone out there, you've got an independent film and you wanted to get a fair shake. I think Bill's Bill's definitely the guy to, to do that. You know? I mean, I, I could watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre just as easy as I can watch 2010 A Space Odyssey. You know, I can watch the August Underground just as well as Jurassic Park. I, as long as it's something that's interesting, I'll give it a shake. And yeah, and I think that's a really cool aspect of a lot of the streaming services that are out there is particularly ones like Tubi that are are free or ones even like Amazon Prime has such a wide breadth of the things that are out there. And then I guess I didn't really mention, and Bill, I'm not sure you did, but Bill, you're in, you're located in Canada. Where specifically in Canada are you? I am about half an hour east of Toronto. For you, things, some of the things that are on Amazon Prime and Netflix, I don't know about Netflix, but they're, they're slightly different sometimes, aren't they? Yeah. Netflix and Prime somehow have, sometimes have variations, but I mean, you might have something that I don't, I might have something you don't, but between yeah, Hulu, between Shutter, between Prime, between Tubi, there's not a lot that gets by that we can't find. Yeah, it's it's all out there. And then, you know, a lot of times sometimes you can still find some movies on YouTube, you know, depending on what YouTube, they are. And... YouTube or Daily Motion, which is Europe's version of YouTube. There's yeah, that's true. Daily Mo- yeah, it, it, you're right. There's not a lot that we can't find. I had a cool opportunity a couple months ago, actually, to go on the Land of the Creeps podcast, and we were discussing Stuart Gordon. And I think that's where I really became aware of how many streaming services are out there, because Gordon did a lot of movies, but not all of them were very uh, well known. It became like a fun scavenger hunt to see how many you could locate and where you could find them. Every once in a while, you get tripped up. Every now and again. Yeah, and I think there was one we couldn't find, but then uh, one of the... One of the, the listeners had found it so so anyway without any further ado i'll get into our first movie and this movie is the vast of night a new film it premiered at the slam dance film festival not this year but last year and then it was picked up by amazon and ultimately released directly to streaming so bill are you good with setting this movie up for us sure absolutely uh, you know what i'll do i'll just start off by reading the imdb that's always fun. Kind, kind of kind of be the gold standard although not always depends who's writing it but it's I'll always entertaining with, it's always entertaining it could be from somebody who's 12 years old or somebody who knows what they're doing who knows in the twilight of the 1950s on one fateful night in new mexico a young switchboard operator, Faye, and charismatic radio DJ, Everett, discover a strange audio frequency that could change their small town and the future forever. Wah, 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 wah. So essentially, it opens up with these two young people, one young gentleman and one young lady, I'd say late teens, early 20s. They're working for a local radio station. They're asking people kind of random, indiscriminate questions at the drive-in. And these people are sometimes getting annoyed because this is set in, what, 1955 or something. So they're walking around with this big bulky radio equipment, sticking a microphone while they're munching on a burger or slurping on a pop. And you're kind of wondering, where is this going? All of a sudden, they go back to their radio station. Uh, Faye is the switchboard operator, so she's dealing with the calls coming in. Everett's the guy, the DJ, taking the calls. And a woman calls in, and she she says she hears something. She gets a message. Someone is calling. They had a sound on her line, and she hears it at the station. And they're like, what's going on? You know, so that Faye is trying to investigate. Everett kind of puts it out there to the population out there saying, does anybody know anything about this? Do you know anything about things in the sky or things that you hear? And they get various testimonials, one from a military man 
who claims to have seen something back in the day, him and his buddies, and they were shifted off to a place that had it because he was a military MP, he was a military police, and he was basically told he was a black man and his partner, I think, was a Hispanic because they're minorities, they were given this information and don't talk about it again. But he gives a long, it's got, it's got to be about a 10-minute dialogue. Uh, over what he saw and they later go into town and talk to an older woman in town who also claims to know something about what's up in the air and what's coming down so that's about another 10 minute dialogue they're interesting and then towards the end of the film i won't give away the climax at the end but there it it, kind of comes to a head at the end it's basically a discovery a two-person detective story uh, with a sci-fi slant trying to figure out what the sound is What's going on in the air? Why is this happening? And does anybody know anything about it? Because this is small town America where they're watching the high school basketball game on a Friday night. And that's the biggest deal in this town. Yeah. And that's it's the basic setup of the plot where the story goes. It goes a few different places, but it doesn't go too far beyond what what, uh, Bill just set up. And Bill definitely held back on a, on a lot of the details in terms of where the story ultimately goes. I think it's safe to say that it's not happening necessarily in real time, but it is definitely happening in a compacted space of time. Essentially, almost everything that happens in this film, which opens with following Everett, who is that, that radio DJ, he is walking in with one of the sound guys who works at the, the high school. They're walking into that gym auditorium and a really kind of awesome opening shot that kind of zooms in and follows them in. And as we get to the close of this film, you have the people leaving the, the, the ball game. So everything that happens in this film, while ultimately embracing a sort of otherworldly sensibility, does occur in a kind of constrained time frame, which I really like that element. And as Bill, you said, the whole town is mostly, they're focused on the basketball game while this entire other story is happening. Another thing um, that was interesting was the way that this movie opens. It actually opens with a Rod Serling-esque sort of narrator talking. They they really try to get it pretty close to Serling. And uh, what is it called? I think it, it's not Twilight Zone, but I think they refer to it as the Paradox Theater. Yeah, the Paradox Theater TV show Vast of Night. So you, you, you open in on the 1950s household, and there's a TV set there that's playing this. And then they kind of zoom in, and you now are inside essentially the episode. And it zooms back out a couple of times. I don't know how ultimately necessary that little technique is, but I do think it gives it a certain flavor that amplifies what's going on in some ways and puts the context of the story out there. Going into this, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect. The trailer was definitely interesting to me. I do like, as you mentioned, two-hander stories where you've got a couple of characters, and when they're investigating something, I always enjoy a good mystery. You notice right away, this is very, this is low budget, but it doesn't necessarily look low budget. You can see that there's a lot of innovation going on. There is one shot where we are leaving the basketball game and then sort of we're hearing this frequency that the switchboard operator picks up. And that Faye, the switchboard operator, is played by Sierra McCormick. When she's hearing that sound, we kind of zoom throughout the town and we, we see her in, uh, and it, it's interesting because you're catching people in these little silos of community. Here's the high school. We zoom over and here she is. You know, she's a telephone operator here. Then we zoom over to Everett, who's at the radio station. And we're going all through town. And it's set up like one continual shot. And I think technically the way that shot is done, I, I became in- instantly more interested in what was happening in the film as that shot 
comes together. That opening where they walk into into the ba- basketball game and everything's being set up and you have the band is getting ready and everything that's happening there, it, it moves around in a way that you'd almost expect out of a different kind of movie. I almost thought back to like Robert Altman movies or or something like that, or even a De Palma film where you're following and you're you're creating this sensibility and you ultimately are following him down underneath the bleachers where they are trying to fix the soundboard and things like that. I really got into that and I think it helped us get a feel for the characters. That introduction and the special, not the special effects, but the technical expertise that were used really kind of got me into the story at that point. And then I was surprised a little bit when it became very much lo-fi, if you, if you want to say that, as we get into the conversations on the radio. Bill, what did you think about those opening sequences in terms I, of how they were done? I found it interesting because it kind of threw me off a bit because you first thought this is a movie and then it's a TV show. So it's kind of switching the format. And then you get the first bit at the basketball game. I thought I was watching the movie Hoosiers for a while there. And and then it goes to them kind of fumbling around and then they're at the drive-in and then they're walking home, and then you're trying to figure out, are they a boyfriend-girlfriend? Do they work together? It took a while. It took a, a methodical way of getting to the point. Like, I found with this movie, there's a lot going on, yet you could still say it's slow-moving. Would it be fair to say, to me, the movie ultimately ends up being a lot about ambiance and atmosphere. It has got a solid story to it. It is also solidly a science fiction story. And it's not a science fiction story. You probably have figured this out by now, but it's not a science fiction story based in explosions and special effects. It's definitely a story based around ideas and concepts and atmosphere. So at one point, the story is important, but I also feel like this story may be the least important thing about the movie, which really seems like it's trying to recreate a very specific feeling um, associated, I think, with both the 1950s and 1950s science fiction, which has a sense of wonder to it, you know, that we've kind of gotten away from. I was going to say, the one thing I do appreciate it is, is one thing I I dislike about the sci-fi genre is that sometimes it gets so bogged down in the science that unless you're really into engineering, you kind of get lost <laughs> in it. Where this this didn't do that. You knew it's science fiction. You know that the concept is there and what's going on, but you it's almost character based as much as it is science based. And that's what I appreciated about the film. I'll give the example. About a month ago, I watched the movie Primer, and that's a time travel movie. <laughs> that's the and, other direction. <laughs> and, and and Primer, I thought conceptually was cool, but I found it got so bogged down in the scientific element that you kind of lost the forest from the trees at times. This movie did not do that. No, and that's a, but but Primer is actually a really good example, I think, or, or comparison point because. That movie dealt with, basically, it, it was a two-hander also. It became more hands for various reasons, but you still basically had only a couple of characters, right, in that movie. And mostly, not an, and not special effects, but them talking about something else. And so, you're right, that movie, I think it was almost purposefully convoluted. You know, it was almost like all the science fiction stuff was there to make you feel like there was something really big and grand going on, but it was almost there to obfuscate what was probably a a much simpler story. This movie sort of kind of taps into that simple sci-fi story to the point I was surprised because 
I sat down and I actually watched this movie with my my kids, and they're a bit younger. They're between um, like six and eight, and they've really gotten into movies. And they actually, I'm I'm always impressed with how much of an attention span they have. The first time we sat down to watch this, my wife and I both fell asleep. Not because the movie to me was not interesting, but it was just been a long day. We we were put it up on the projector, so the room's completely dark, and we were gone. And when I woke up, uh, we we stopped the movie because it was around their bedtime. It wasn't. It was about half over at that point. And he is excitedly telling me about all this, and I and my daughter too. And they both were really into it. And he's telling me, oh, and then they they dug this thing up and they did all these things. And I'm thinking, wow, this movie got a lot more action packed, and the scope got a lot bigger than I was expecting from what I watched. And it was funny because when I went back and watched it, I realized that everything he's describing, which you sort of said, Bill. Everything he's describing is doesn't physically happen on screen. It's one character talking to another character across the radio in a 10-minute sequence that for maybe what, Bill, five or six of those minutes, it's just a black screen. I was going to say, this is a perfect segue to what you thought about the two very strong dialogue pieces in the film. The storytelling between the radio and then the old lady. What Did you think they were effective? Could they have done better? Because they were the main vehicles to kind of fill in the gaps with information. But they were quite long in terms of detail of what was thrown at the audience. When I went back and I was watching it and seeing it, and I was looking at my kids, and like, it clearly really worked for them. Like, it tapped into their imagination because when my son was explaining it, he was explaining the scene with stuff, with information the, the, the guy who calls up doesn't give them. You know, he was describing it visually to me. Except it's not; it doesn't happen visually at all. And I think about like back when I was a kid reading War of the Worlds or listening to that War of the Worlds radio, which I don't know if you noticed, the radio station is W O T W, which I thought was a fun kind of. Oh, I, I didn't even catch that. Throw up, yeah, yeah. To, to to War of the Worlds. That was kind of fun. That that sequence when Bruce and Bruce Davis, I think he has the kind of perfect voice. I think you would say it almost sounded like. A, a different or maybe more recognizable actor. He really does a great job with that that narration. So I think it's effective, but I've seen the movie a couple times now. And I the first time I was having a hard time latching on to exactly what he was saying. And honestly, sometimes when it went to full black screen, it was a little easier for me to focus in and just it try to immerse myself in what he was doing. But I don't know how effective that was the very first time because I was I was intrigued with their visuals. I was intrigued with this setting. You really had that feeling of, oh, it's a hot summer night. And these two characters, the, the interaction and tension between them is really effective between Everett and uh, Faye. And so the movie really stops in the way some 1950s movies stop and had that interaction. The professor walks in and says, this is what happened, Billy. But here it's done in a much more compelling way. But I, I do think that you really have to be in, they they do the best they can to draw you in. I thought the Bruce Davis sequence was actually more effective than the scene with the old lady, which is more traditionally shot. Um, although I think she starts to give more... What he's describing has a sense of mystery that pulled me in. She is starting to explain what she believes is happening. And with movies like this, I kind of feel like the explanation is always a little less compelling than the central mystery. And I don't know that Bast of Night solves that problem. I mean, I, I was texting with you as I was watching it, and I was saying that initially when Bruce Davis started talking and when the older lady gave her interpretation, I started to try to take notes. I gave up because there was just so much thrown at me that you, you really want to get a flavor of what they're saying rather than every detail that they're giving. Yeah, and I and I think that that's the main thing that you take away, is there's the, the flavor and the feeling, but when then you realize as you're being lulled into it, you're like, wait, what did he just say? 
And yeah. I, the first time I rewound it a couple times to hear it, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me, particularly the second time watching it, because I think the first time I watched it, I thought, this was good, but where it ultimately goes, I was into those moments where you're hearing Bruce Davis talk. And I think what was super, really effective about this is it taps into that wide-eyed wonder that we talked about that happens in the 50s. And there's a moment where someone says something like, uh, there's something in the sky. And I'm like, how many times have we heard that, right, in a science fiction movie? And it felt like it didn't necessarily feel fresh, but it had an effective sense on me in this movie. You know, they're pretty smart, I think, at the way they're telling this story, because the fact that Bruce Davis does start to talk about he realizes that the job he was given this really super covert job to to uh, work on essentially unearthing this thing that they didn't want anyone else to know about. He realizes that he was chosen specifically because as an African-American male in the 1950s, no one was going to listen to him. Yeah, there was, and, a, there, was, there was a subtle or maybe not so subtle message within that. Yeah, and I think that was so the, – the movie kept bringing in elements like this to encapsulate a lot of what was going on in the 50s. So this isn't ever – this doesn't just become a normal sort of fun little sci-fi romp. It keeps bringing in some very interesting aspects of the of the time frame. You get this sense of paranoia that is more effective here than I've seen in similar movies – and it kind of carried me all the way through. The only thing I will say, it does come full circle. It does bring the story to a conclusion. It does start to give you some of the sights that you were kind of expecting to see maybe when you began watching it. And now, again, lower budget, and it's primarily interested in atmosphere and the interactions of these characters. But it it did come through for me, and it did. I think I even liked it better the second time. First time I saw it, I thought, oh, that's fine. Watching it a second time, it started to kind of all lock in, and I felt like, it went from being pretty good to, to, for me, one of the more enjoyable science fiction movies I've seen this year and a movie that I do want to return to. But what were your ultimate thoughts about it? Um, my ultimate thoughts, I just have a couple more things because I have said a lot about it already. I did find some of the camera angles in the first 10, 15 minutes I had to get used to. I, I wrote down my literal note is weird camera angles that someone or something is looking around town. You kind of got that voyeuristic camera angle, first-person POV of you're getting shots of the town, and then you're getting shots of the basketball game. And you're like the camera angles were, I don't know if it was because of the budget or just the creative uh, vision of the director. They weren't conventional camera angles to start with. Um, the, the one criticism I did have was that I found the ending a bit rushed. I found they kind of put it together in a nice little bow a little too quick. I think it could have used another 15 minutes to kind of get a little bit more out of it. But uh, I, I ultimately, I enjoyed it. It's not necessarily the type of movie that I would go out necessarily to want to see, but I am happy that I saw it. I thought the characters were interesting. They were engaging enough. You did have a bit of distance with the characters, but at the same time, you did want to follow their journey they were kind of haphazard uh, investigating. They almost got the Hardy Boy, Nancy Drew kind of playing off each other in this. So I kind of like that. Ultimately, I give it a six and a half to a seven out of ten. And it's family friendly. If anybody out there has kids and they want to watch it, it's definitely family friendly. I didn't hear a swear word. I didn't see any nudity. I didn't see any blood. Yeah, go out and watch it. It's on Prime, so pick her up. And it is, as you said, it is family friendly. And I think it's also an, it's an interesting sort of, it can be... A good litmus test to see uh, for 
younger people who might be interested in sci-fi to introduce them to something that is a little bit different. This is not an Independence Day or Transformers. And and honestly, thank goodness for that, in my opinion. I, there's places for all those kind of popcorn movies. But it's nice to see this kind of movie, which is, I think, altogether smarter and, and more intelligent than most of those movies we would get from the 1950s. But it captures that time period, I think, in a way that was particularly compelling. And the thing you said about the camera angles was the thing I think I liked the best, the sense of paranoia, the sense of, yes, some is someone else or something watching? And, and yet we know that part of that something or someone is us because there's that wraparound of the Paradox Theater. Now, I kind of thought that those were unnecessary. Um, did we really need to feel like, I mean, you can kind of watch this movie and get that Twilight Zone vibe without those Twilight Zone pieces. And I do wonder, I'd be interested to know whether those Paradox Theater segments were in the original uh, film when it came to Slam Dance or not. You know, I wonder if that was really there because it feels like it could have been added. You know, it does. It, it certainly is surface level. I don't think it necessarily adds or detracts, uh, although I felt at some moments pulling back to that did disrupt the story a little bit. I do agree with what you said about the ending of the film, because I think that Everett and Faye, they're interesting characters, but you're right that the movie is so methodical that they don't really start to warm to one another until well into in the entrance of the third act. And by that point, and the same is true of the mystery, the mystery doesn't really start to unravel itself until the end. And when you get to the last 50 minutes of this, we still, I'm not in, entirely sure of where everything is going or what's happening. I think some of that sense of, of, of being disoriented is on purpose, but it does wrap up a little too quickly. I think because when you build so much atmosphere and you do so much groundwork, then I'm really ready for the adventure to begin. You know what I mean? I could have watched another hour of this had it continued to escalate the way it had. And that brings me to my ultimate feeling is there is a strong sense to me that I know that this movie wasn't made for this. At any point, Bill, did you get a feeling you were watching almost like a pilot or a pitch for a show that would have the same appeal as something like a Stranger Things or the X-Files. But I really felt like at the end of this, I was thinking I could follow Faye and Everett on a lot more adventures. I could follow them throughout whatever happens in this adventure. And it really gave me that feeling of wanting more. And if this were a pilot, I think it's one of the best pilots I would have seen, you know, for a TV show. Yeah, that's why I kind of just flippantly threw out the Hardy Boy, Nancy Drew thing, because this could go in, a, in a many different uh, avenues. You could have them just soulfully trying to figure out this mystery. Uh, are they going to kind of travel as a radio station uh, show and be a science kind of uh, tell me your story, I'll try to figure it out? Are they going to visit different towns? Are they going to bring other people involved? Or is this just going to be like that quirky town that a lot of crap happens in? You know, like, right. It, it could go, you could go many different avenues with this if this is the base of the series. Yeah. And I think I'd be interesting to see if there's any kind of thought about that because, um, and Amazon, you know, it's definitely a smaller movie. And one of the things I'll be doing with the podcast is for every like um, episode we have like this, I will be releasing kind of shorter episodes that are just re like quick reviews of, of the new stuff that's on on some of the streaming networks. So, uh, and a movie I just saw that is kind of similar in a lot of ways to this is a movie called Cosmos. That's also small. It was kind of dropped on Amazon without any fanfare. This one seems to, 
generated a little more fanfare. For one thing, you know, right now the only movie theaters really open for the most part in the country are drive-in movie theaters. Amazon specifically released this to drive-in movie theaters about two weekends before they released it on Prime. So when you watch the movie, I think there is an opportunity to maybe be disappointed a little because, you know, they seem to be really – making a, a deal about it and then you're watching oh this is a smaller movie there's tons of movies that drop on amazon of this qual of this same quality indie movies as we know uh without any fanfare at all so it does make me wonder if there is some greater method to that you know if maybe they are testing the water to see what this would look like because i mean i personally would give these guys money to uh to give this director money to make another a movie but i give them money to continue this story yeah it's interesting and also what kind of audience would they be going after are they going after the 12 to 14 year olds are they going for the people our age in our 40s are they good like are they going for males females because there's all kind of different dynamics you could go for so i'd be very curious as to where this kind of it's got its seed is there now where's where are the sapling gonna go you know yeah and i think the time is right for this this kind of story so i strongly recommend it for me you know when i first finished watching it i came in probably about a at a seven two bill or seven point five i mean i'll be honest uh see i haven't seen it twice now i'll probably go for a full eight just because to me it is that strong kind of movie that i will revisit i think that it is doing things that are familiar in a way that is a little less familiar and it's not it's a movie that didn't instantly evaporate from my mind especially with the feelings that it creates and I think for me, the fact that it's still living in my head a couple weeks after the fact um, does make it does make me think that there's a bit more there. And you do get a little bit more when you go back for a second viewing. That's all. That's always a good litmus test for me. Is there more here? Um, I do feel it strongly did feel almost like a podcast or a radio play to me. And I, in fact, you could have probably done this as a radio play, and it would have been just about as effective. So I think it's a great gateway thing, though, to introduce not not even just introduce the genre to younger people, but to introduce this lost era. As is, I know you feel, Bill. There's a lot of great stuff um, in book format, in radio format, in film format in the 1950s for people and, and younger people who won't even touch a black and white movie or anything that's quote unquote old. And I think this is a good gateway to show them, you know, it almost felt like American graffiti meets close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Like, I mean, they introduced a little bit of family stuff uh, with Faye and was it her sister? I can't recall who they picked up at one point and they brought her into the car and what have you. Like there are some family elements that we just got the surface part of and we don't know anything about Everett. And so like there are all kinds of things. We don't know their backgrounds or anything like you could, you they could just be surface people or you could dig deep into them. Like it's an open canvas. And there's a lot of room for building, so... I, I mean, this could be one of those cult shows, like a Quantum Leap or an X-Files kind of deal, you know? Oh, yeah. Who, who I'd knows? absolutely watch it, too. I, yeah, I think... Um, and I think either way, I think it's probably safe to say, this director, Andrew Patterson, I think it's safe to say this is a calling card. You're going to see this guy again. And I'd far rather see him, I think, following this up with another original story than to hear that he's assigned to, you know, Jurassic Park 7 or something like that in a few months or some franchise. You know, I would much rather see another original piece of work from him. 
Yeah, kind of see what his vision was. Was this a one-off where the studio kind of told him what they wanted, or is this just kind of his style? When it was originally conceived and made, I think it was an indie film that went to festivals and then was picked up. So I think this is his original vision. The people who made this film made it you know, on their own terms and the thing they wanted to make. I just wonder if now that Amazon has it and knowing the kind of thirst that there is for this kind of entertainment, if they if they don't have, you know, you pick it up and look at it. I don't think this was created as a pilot, but they, you know, to look at it and say, hey, there's some there's some potential here. Yeah, and absolutely. So, okay, so that is The Vast of Night. I'd love to hear uh, what, what all of you think about it. At the end of the show here, I will throw out uh, information about our Facebook page and things like that. So this next segment where we're going to kind of bring in the, the the VOD roulette, which is an idea I had years ago. VOD wasn't that much of a thing when I had first conceived of doing this. And then um, after talking with Bill, who's always like, hey, I just turned on Tubi and pressed a button. I thought, oh, this, this will be a great thing to kind of capture as a regular feature on a podcast and so i never had really had the opportunity to press to to kind of pull the trigger on this and i think what's great now is we have so many streaming options you know bill like there's so much when netflix first opened up it had a few handful of things same with amazon now they're streaming stuff out the wall i mean the idea of sort of the physical media you you know a lot of us still like to have that but man streaming is such a different has really changed the way things are i realize my kids have no concept for what it's like back when you really had to like, you know, half of your Friday night was run into the video store to find the movie you wanted to see. Yeah, that you know what you're you get a little bit of it was it Joel on RM on Retro Movie Geek calls cinematic nostalgia disorder. And like those days where you used to go to Blockbuster and you could literally spend 45 minutes looking, even though, you know, there's no way in hell that you had seen all of the movies there. You still looked around for that one film you were looking for that your buddies in high school or your friends or whatever were talking about. So this has replaced that where you're like, uh, I don't want this one. Go to the next one. You, you can literally come across 30 movie titles in two minutes. You know, and you, there's no excuse not to see something. No. And I've noticed that particularly with Amazon and Tubi as well, they've been putting a lot of the old stuff. Like I took a screenshot not long ago of Amazon, you know, when they give you other movies recommended for you. And it looked like the like the, the schlock horror wall of the blockbuster. You know what I mean? Back in the, yeah. the 90s, it was like every one of those movies, some of Full Moon stuff was up there, you know. And Killer Clowns from Outer Space and, you know, all these things. And then indie stuff that you never heard of. There was one, I was a teenage wear skunk. I'm like, I'm sure that's not worth seeing, but I'm going to watch it anyway. <laughs> the kids of today will never know the struggle of going to the video store and sticking a movie you might want to watch behind something else. And then having right. to go back and, oh, great, Teen Wolf. I, found, I stuck it behind some safety film. Great. You know, it's still there. It's a funny, my wife often tells the story of uh this was probably late 90s and she and her cousins went to the video store uh with my my wife her mother took them to the video store to rent a movie and the cousins were kind of like the um my wife tells me they were the bad influence but i don't know but anyway they they wanted a different movie so what they did is they're like okay we want uh you know blockbuster would have the movies and you'd have the box and then so they were like here let's we want to rent dr doolittle and they'd hand her dr doolittle and they would be like oh wait you know uh, let me go get a different copy or a, and so they they kind of played a bait and switch and what ended up happening is they she they got her mother to rent them texas chainsaw massacre under under the guise of it being dr doolittle oh boy so it's funny because i feel like you know growing up and you're like you always hear about the, the the guys that went to a like 
birthday party or something and watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And here were three three young girls, probably in middle school, doing the same thing. Except, you know, they the mother thinks they're watching uh, Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle. We could go down a rabbit hole, much like I do on Tubi on this. And we could be on forever with anybody 35 plus. Just oh, yeah. That, a video store episode is not a bad idea. You know, I, I like that because you're right. It was a very certain kind of experience. But what we're kind of doing is throwing a title out. The idea would be, at least for this first episode, I picked a title. Bill picked a title. For the purposes of this first one, we basically said, since we talked about a 1950s-style science fiction film in The Vast of Night, that we would each pick either a movie that was a 1950s sci-fi movie or something that embodied that style and that that concept. And for future episodes, I'm really going to also use the Facebook page and use this, uh, the podcast, to generate listener ideas. I'd love to hear from you on what you think uh give us some recommendations otherwise what we're probably doing is we're just kind of pick one out of the hat and and throw it at each other after this and we'll do that at the very end of this episode but so to start out we again we each picked a movie and then we left it to the other person to review and in both cases i watched the movie i picked for bill because it's just not fair to throw something at somebody with no intention if you you can't you can't throw something out if you ain't willing to do it yourself. And then I know Bill's got the same mindset. So we each picked a different movie. We just picked, again, we had a little bit of criteria in this first one. And going forward, I don't think it'll just be sort of whatever pops into our head. Um, I'll go ahead and mention the movie that I picked for you, Bill. And then you can review it. Does that sound good? And then we'll come back and we'll do the one uh, that you picked for me. I am easy. So <laughs> sounds I- good. Don't tell my wife that. (laughs) Um, I had the pleasure of watching one that you sent to me called Alien Trespass from 2009. And when you first sent me the link, I was like, okay, I'm open-minded. Give it a shot. And then it was about 20 minutes and I'm like, oh, I have seen this. But I (laughs) I have probably seen 700 films since then and I did not recall from the title. So I'll give the uh, IMDb synopsis. After a crash landing near a desert town, an alien enlists the help of a local waitress to recapture a monster that escaped from the wreckage of his spaceship. Now, this is shot in very much homage to 1950s films, but it's from 2009. So it's a modern take on the 50s, kind of the Russians are coming, you got the nuclear space race, you got monsters that are the harbinger of doom to come, shot in 2009. So it stars Eric McCormick as the main protagonist in the film, but there's also a a very nice supporting cast amongst them. Dan Loria, who you might know, remember, is the dad in The Wonder Years, but he's done a lot of really good stuff. Robert Patrick is T-1000 in the Terminator film. Uh, you got Jody Thompson. You've got a whole whack of people. There's probably 15 actual bit players in this. So what happens is McCormick and his wife, played by Jody Thompson, the character of Lana, Eric McCormick is a scientist, uh, an astronomer, I believe it is, It's their anniversary, and they're making a nice meal. He's getting a nice gift for her. They're all getting all schmoozing around. And they see something flash across the sky. And everybody in town thinks it's just a meteor or a falling star. And the only people that actually see it coming down are a couple teenagers that are making out in a car, and something comes down. Well, it is a very interesting film because... Uh, Robert Patrick plays a local police officer. 
as does Dan Loria. It's his last week on the job. He's retiring. And it's a small, sleepy town, USA. Not much happens. You might have the odd uh, break-in, or you might have the odd uh, mailbox knocked over. But in Dan's Dan Loria's final two days on the job, all this kind of happens. So he's kind of just trying to drink his coffee and get through the week, and all this kind of hits the fan. And so it's Dan Loria and Robert Patrick going down to investigate what people are saying they saw. Well, when it happens that night, Eric McCormick's curiosity gets the best of him. And he goes over to the, he discovers a ship that has fallen. It's not too much of a spoiler to say that Eric McCormick gets sucked into the ship. And a facsimile of him comes out. But he's now an alien form that's out to discover what's going on in the earth and and you kind of get more as the film goes but he's always talking about gota there's a space creature that kind of comes out and he's out and he basically is zapping people in a kind of a cool form kind of gathering their body for their nutrients and then leaving a slimy puddle it's kind of like slimer from ghostbusters kind of wraps up nicely it's it's cutely shot it's got some really cool retro effects. The cast is excellent. Uh, there's some fun overacting. Like, there is overacting, but it's done in a fun way as an homage to that style of film. Because the people that are in it are good actors. There's a, a part of a scene where, where there's a, a younger brother and a sister. And the, the alien comes to their, the space monster comes to their room and their house. And a lot of stuff happens at that point. I'm not going to give away everything. But in the boys' room, there's posters on the wall of real films of the of the era. The Man from Planet X is on there. And Destruct Destination Moon poster is on there. So these people that made the movie really are fans of the genre. And the director, R.W. Goodwin, had worked on The X-Files, The Fugitive, and an episode of The Wonderful World at Disney. So he kind of has that sci-fi fantasy swath to him. He obviously watched these kind of films growing up. And, you know, the Ed Wood style of filming and the early sci-fi films of that nature. And so highly recommended. I would give this one a solid minimum 7.5 out of 10, if not an 8. And that's coming from somebody that's not necessarily a sci-fi guy. But this is a well-put-together film. And it's a lot of fun. And it is a family-friendly film. Not quite to the same extent the last one was. I would definitely recommend this film. I don't know what your thoughts are, but I'm pretty sure you enjoyed this one too, Nathan. I did, and I had seen this back in 2009 when it came out. 2009 was probably when we started to see a lot more of this, which is that replication of an old style of movie. You know, The same year that this movie came out, and I don't think many people saw this one, we also had, a, I thought, a really excellent replication of an old style movie with ty west house of the devil different genre purely horror and in replication of an 80s style but anytime you start to get that you know you use the music of the 80s and that one the opening theme music sounded like a car sounded like uh, a song by the cars almost identical just re readjusted a little bit and so there's this thing where you're homaging and then homage sometimes moves into actual replication where house of the devil for a lot of intensive purposes, you could almost watch that movie, and if you weren't, you know, you didn't pick up on the fat on a few facts, you could think that you're watching a a lost movie from the 80s, right? Yep. Same way. Now, Alien Trespass, the way it looks, it's bright and it's vibrant, and you're never in doubt that hey, this is a movie that was made recently. 
but in its sensibility, in the way it sounds, the way it looks, minus the color, and the way its shots are, are created, and its special effects, they are things you'd absolutely could see in the 1950s. This this isn't just someone like making... This is not a person making fun of a 50s movie. This isn't even a person trying to use the tropes of a 50s movie. This is them getting as close as they can to that earnest, wide-eyed feeling of a 1950s movie, down to the point where it's unintentionally goofy. Although, how do you make a movie where actors have to be intentionally, unintentionally goofy? I think that's where a lot of these things fall apart, you know. It's much easier to make a movie, one that comes to mind is like The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was clearly people being as dumb as they could to replicate a really bad 50s movie. I was going to say, this is what I appreciated about it, because they got quality cast who can overact while not being over the top. And it's not, it doesn't just keep you at an, uh, I don't, I didn't think it kept me at an arm's length with the fact that I wasn't just sitting there laughing at the goofy production values. I kind of got into the story a little bit, you know, as you mentioned, R.W. Goodwin has, was a producer on the X-Files. He was also a director of several episodes. X-Files would often have what were almost more comedic or more lighter episodes. This could almost be an episode that kind of episode of the X-Files. You could have put yeah. Mulder and Scully into the story, moved it out of the 50s, but kept that sensibility, and you would have not missed a beat, and it would have been perfectly effective. Eric McCormick, you know, a lot of these people are from television. Most of these people are from television. Uh, McCormick, of course, was Will on Will and Grace for a very long time, and I liked him here, both as initially the scientist who's trying to decide, you know, it's his anniversary, and his wife is beckoning to him in the doorway in the new lingerie, but he's also... With the meteoroid, as he calls it, he's also thinking, "Can I get? Can I do both? Can I? Can I do this? And then can I get out and see the meteoroid?" So I, I like how you know his eyebrow raises and he's got the pipe in his hand the whole time, and I love that kind of stuff because that's character character stuff. Uh, I loved Robert Patrick, always kind of a gruff character, but here the biggest trick is that he's basically making a move on anybody he can come across. You know, to the point that he's he's asking the girl who's trying to report this monster that showed up in their house, he's asking, well, how's her sister doing? <laughs> then the facsimile that you mentioned, you know, where you kind of get almost a daily or stood still sort of feel with this alien in a human body who doesn't quite know, and he's looking for Gota, and they at that point don't know what Gota is. And it just has a lot of fun. It's a very lightweight movie. I don't think it's intended to be more. I actually did watch it with my kids who are a little bit younger, and they really liked it. I, I think that the worst you actually kind of have is there's a little bit of innuendo, but most of that flew over their heads, you know. Yeah. Uh, again, no nudity, nothing like that. No. The monster attacks. The monster itself, the Gota, is it's built like something that you would see in a 50s movie. So while what it does is a little creepy, and I also love those little slime trails. Little slime trails are great. Uh, and like the, the leavings that it would leave behind after sucking the nutrients. Those attack sequences are not convincing as a, you know, they're not particularly horrific, but they are fun. Um, I think that, I think my favorite scene in the movie involves an attack on the movie theater. And uh, without giving too much away, we at this point they've determined what the Goda's weakness is. And then when they run up to go to the movie theater <laughs> armed in a specific way with some specific uh, weaponry, I just thought, hey, this is great. And it, there are moments, it doesn't quite go, it, I don't think it's quite as accomplished as, like, say, a Joe Dante movie, but it had that kind of feel, you know, going for that same feel that Joe Dante gets a small town invaded by creatures that he did with gremlins and small soldiers, the burbs, all of these stories. And then, of course, he did Matinee, which also kind of went into the world of 50s filmmaking. But 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love seeing Dan Loria again, and he's a good, strong actor. Again, most of these people, you could follow almost any of these people that show up in this movie and track them back through their TV work, and you'll find someone with a lot of strong TV credits. And, and Goodwin himself had a lot of strong TV credits when he did this. And it probably would have really worked well as almost a TV movie. You know, they I, I feel like most people didn't see it, but it maybe had it been broadcast, it would have gotten a wider audience. But yeah, I, I'd say I'm probably a little more the other direction where you were on Vast of Night with this one. I'm not quite that high, but I'd say a 7, between a 6.5 and a 7, it's, it is good at what it does. It does open an eye up on a world of films that have merit to them. And there are movies out there, uh, you know, Alien Trespass is engaging in a way, and it kind of reminds us that there were a lot of those 50s movies that were engaging in a way. I also appreciated that the alien bounty hunter, but this character who's out looking for the alien monster, that he is ultimately like a, a space marshal, and his name is Erp, but it's it's U-R-P and not E-A-R-P, so I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. So there are two things that I appreciated about this film. One, it just goes to show how good an actor Dan Loria is, because I, I really thought he was a standout in this you could also tell that eric mccormick is having an absolute blast you can you can just it, it, he exudes like i'm having fun i pinch myself i can't believe i'm pretending to be a 1950s scientist and for yeah. those and for those adults out there jody thompson as mccormick's wife was just smoking she looked great in this film <laughs> she's she was on a great sci-fi show years ago if anyone has seen it and it's several i think uh there's several people from here that were on that was the 4400. She had a reoccurring role on that Jody Thompson did, and she was really good in it. And if there's someone out there looking for a kind of off the beaten path, sci-fi show, um, it's a few years older now. It was, it probably came about in that time between lost and heroes. And so it's not as sophisticated as some things are now, but it's a really good show. The 4400, I think it might've been on USA or something, but was yeah, that the, was that the one where people go missing? Yeah, they do. And they've had yeah. a couple shows like that since, but the 4400 was, it was the one to do it. I don't say first, cause there were probably a few shows before that, but it had a decent amount of time. It, I don't think it, I think it ultimately did get canceled before it, came to fruition but it had a little bit of time it had a couple seasons to flesh itself out so i um i do strongly recommend that that was good but um yeah and i think the hard work i think or it's not as easy as it looks i should say to make a movie where you've got characters pretending like you said to be insincere actor you know what i mean they have to get across the character and then they also have to get the idea that the character might be trying a little hard <laughs> Yeah. A little too hard to get them to uh, do the um, the emotions that are necessary. I was going to yeah. say, it's the kind of thing that, you mean, somebody who's a top-end actor, like a Brad Pitt or something like that, he might not be able to pull something like this off because you kind of get yourself into a different headspace when you're doing this kind of film. Yeah, and I think that might be why the TV actors work so well. But I definitely, you know, I had seen it, I liked it, and when... It came up, and I thought to myself, I bet you Bill's already seen this, but it just seemed like a fun one to want to revisit. And I, when I rewatched it, I was like, you know, I don't think I gave this one its due. And I do think this is one that people can have a lot of fun with because we see those movies, like the the ones that pop up, like I Was a Teenage Wear Skunk or The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, and you want them to be as fun as an old 50s movie, and they very rarely are. And McCormick, he gives he gets a chance to give one of those big, not as profound as it thinks it is speech towards the very end. And I love the way he delivers it, you know, almost in a, uh, you know, Michael Rennie doing his speech from Day the Earth Stood Still. It, he got to do his take on it. And I thought that I, was fun. I, I liked it right at the end when, I won't give away what happens, but at the end he goes, oh, I had a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
and the and this is another one that had the very very opening it has this scene that's again like a weird bookend of here's the film library lost the print of this movie and you've got mccormick again as the actor who plays the so i had picked this one thinking you know it's because for one thing, I didn't want to write first time scare Bill off completely, although I know you'll watch just about anything. I was like, yeah. let me not throw something really terrible at him. So I, w- I remembered liking it. I was like, let's do this. And then I and then, Bill, I think you were just like went for the first title. Well, no, <laughs> it, it, title. well what I did is I went into Tubi and I knew that Nathan's sci-fi sophistication is higher than mine. So I went in and I, I found one with an outlandish title and the story right up was like, good God, really? All right, this is what I'm going to give to Nathan. And then later I did a big chuckle because I looked at the poster and I said, oh my gosh, maybe I didn't get what I thought I was going to get. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I, when I saw it, I thought, yep, that's Bill. Because you sent me the link and you're right, the picture pops up. And uh, now to your credit, the poster is a completely different beast than the movie itself. Absolutely. Um, and so this one is the astounding she-monster. I will give you credit because you're right. I've seen a lot of movies, but I have never seen this movie. And I wasn't even aware of this movie. I probably had heard the title before. But, you know, there's a lot of 50s movies and they all have kind of the same sort of title. This is a 1958 science fiction film. And I look, it, it's as say sci-fi. It looks like it's trying to combine a couple other genres as well. It's almost trying to be, a, I don't say noir, because it's never, it's it's always too sunny for that. But it's it's trying to be almost like a crime caper film. Oh, it has this element of science fiction. It might be trying to be a horror film, but I don't know that it's successful in that. You know, there is a monster who comes to Earth, and it's supposed to be kind of stalking people. But we'll kind of talk a little bit more of that in the moment. The plot Surprise. So uh, let me discuss the poster because, you know, Bill does mention that. So Astounding She-Monster, it has that feeling of of the goofy 50 sci-fi. The poster is almost what you'd expect, but it's just a little more sultry. (laughs) You know, like you sent me the picture and you've got this woman who uh, it's hard to tell whether she's wearing a sort of like space age leotard or if she's nude and she has her hands in an almost dancer pose up in front of her face and you know she's kind of peering between them and somebody uh and, and it, it looks kind of almost you can see the galaxies sort of swirling around on the front of her outfit there and um uh, on the on facebook i think it was willis wheeler who popped up and said this looks like marvel's dazzler from it was again kind of the 60s era marvel character and it does kind of look like dazzler she has that you know looks she's about to do something astonishing this pick is 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 definitely uh, sexing it up much more than it actually is but i gotta tell you the plot was way more complex than i was expecting it definitely opens up in a way that you're familiar with where with that voice intoning over the the credits you know, you start out with a narrator and they're talking about the vastness of space and how terrible human beings are. And the idea that there might be people on the planet, on other planets who are wondering how dangerous are human beings and what will we what will they do one day when they find out the answer to that question? And it kind of goes on and on and after. And then when the movie begins, he's still narrating and he's narrating almost everything that's happening on screen. And then not just narrating. I don't know if I've ever seen this in a movie that wasn't like a naked gun style spoof. He starts to comment on it you know like uh, you start out with these gangsters who kidnap this socialite who, margaret chaffee is her name she's played by marilyn harvey and the gangsters are nate burdell and brad conley uh, who are again most of these people are no names here ken duncan and ewing miles brown play those gangsters and then there's also the gun mole who's probably one of my favorite characters in the story here uh, esther malone 
and she's played by Jean Tatum. And then the, what happens is they, they get the socialite, and on the narrator is saying things like, well, and if you're a wealthy socialite, you could expect to be kidnapped or something, you know, just <laughs> very weird. And I heard that, and I'm like, this is odd. And again, it's that moment where am I watching a 50s movie or am I watching someone spoof a 50s movie? But it's done completely sincerely, seemingly. They're, they're trying for that purple prose of like a pulp story, but they've gone way. They, they just overshot it by, by miles. So they go to the mountains in a cabin, you know, to kind of await to get the ransom that they they want. So they've told Margaret's dad, you know, you got to give me you got to give us money and you come here. So you got that story going on and it's set up like. It takes a while to kind of get that part going, and none of it is particularly interesting. Like, that's the, the strange thing. This movie is so, <laughs> so bland that its blandness makes it weird. Like, it actually goes from being bland to odd because of how every shot is shot in such a way where you just look like someone did a wide-shot camera angle, like you were filming a high school play, and you waited for someone to walk in from the left and from the right and talk and then leave. And then you bring in the geologist character, who whose name is Dick Cutler, which again, you're <laughs> like, and so he's, you know, you get the meteor crash in the forest, and then you've got the alien who emerges. True to the cover, you've got the beautiful alien, except when she comes out, she's wearing this really clunky, weird, like, I, I assume that her costume is supposed to be sort of form-fitting to give her this sort of, you know, sensual but not too sensual look. She almost looks like, uh, I should mention at this point, this is one of those movies, and you'll figure it out pretty quickly, it's much more fun to listen to people talk about than to actually watch it or to read about the production. <laughs> and I was not that astonished to realize that Ed Wood Jr., yes, that Ed Wood Jr., was a consultant on this film. And when you see the she-monster herself, she kind of looks like Ed Wood's pal Vampira, who showed up in many of his movies, including the Plan 9 from Outer Space. And she's got the same eyebrows and some of that. But then they've tried to light her with this extreme light on this form-fitting thing she's wearing. And she looks like a woman-shaped light bulb. They're in the cabin. They Everyone's kind of together now. They send some of the guys out. They're in Cutler's cabin. Cutler's there. The alien is outside. Again, this might be effective if they were doing any of this properly, but there's no tension at all. They'll send the gangsters out. You'll hear gunshot. Watching this, I watched it. Without knowing anything about it. And the movie is what, like an hour and a handful of minutes long? An hour two. And it felt a lot longer to me, like a lot longer. And I fell asleep. I woke up. I had to start to get back where it was. And it took me about three, three stabs to get this one done. Where the story goes is really irrelevant. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth with this. And you realize that they've got a story. They are telling a story. But they're telling it in such uh, in a way that is devoid of any kind of compelling narrative common sense that it feels like a five-year-old just trying to tell you a story and they keep getting distracted, you know, and they go back to this and they've got too much going on. Uh, I did like one scene in particular, and then I'll turn it over to you, Bill, where, and it was probably the most interesting thing in the movie, it has nothing to do with any of this alien stuff, is the, the a gun mole, you know, the, the movie seems to be implying, okay, she's here, but she maybe has an alcohol problem, and there's a point when the geologist and the, and the socialite are trying to get her to take more drinks <laughs> so they can kind of, you know, turn the tables. That scene had the beginnings of something interesting. I don't know that it fully... Uh, 
achieved that, but it was a little bit of interest. And at that point, I was about to cling on to anything I could get. Uh, the movie has a twist ending, but it's so like shoddily done that it's as silly as anything else that happened. And I don't know how much of a real twist it is. It's the kind of thing you'd expect to see in a Twilight Zone episode. I will say this one thing for the movie, that this weird genre mix they're doing where we've got the crime story that collides into the sci-fi story, and then you've got the geologist in the middle. Like, you didn't see a lot of that, you know? Usually a 50s movie might be more straightforward where it's going. You did see it happen a lot on Twilight Zone, but Twilight Zone didn't start until a year after this movie was released. Um, I'm sure it had no bearing on the Twilight Zone, but the one thing at least we can say is it wasn't ripping the Twilight Zone off, which is about the best thing I can say. I'm, I'm holding that little fact about why she was walking backwards back, Bill, because I want to hear what you think first, <laughs> and then we can discuss that. Uh, well, my impression was I'm not quite as harsh on it. Um, I wouldn't say it's a good film by any means, but what did I write down on my notes? It has a certain charm about it. A couple little things about it. it uh, one, the story is narrated. So when it, the first five minutes in, is a narration story, and I thought... Is that the way this film's going to go? And then all of a sudden the characters start talking. So it, it kind of starts off on the wrong foot. And the uh, woman, when she gets uh, kidnapped, it's kind of like she's uh, the film is shot from her from afar. So it's almost got that Ed Wood Plan 9 where they have those shots of Bella Lugosi coming out of the house. They're kind of just randomly thrown in there. Uh, I did notice that there's stock animal footage that was used when they used <laughs> the lion. It, it's That's obviously stock obvious. footage. <laughs> but I did write down, has the feel of an Outer Limits or Twilight Zone episode. But I did notice it was shot before it. So, you know, give them credit. They didn't rip them off. And I also thought that the musical score I put decent. For the limited budget, the musical score kind of pulled the story along as it's supposed to. It, and you'll like this. I wrote down, lead gangster looks a little like Shemp from the Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> That's not wrong either. And the level of of uh, acting ability there, it's like, you know, you're, you're sitting there constantly wondering, like, do they know that it's this bad? And I'm assuming they probably did. But the one thing I love about these kind of films is this 1957, 58, whatever it is, the gangsters, you know, they're still at the point where they got their all this action going on. They've got guns. They're still wearing suits. Uh, uh, yes. uh, you know, they got like a starched collar, white shirt. They got slacks on. They got a full jacket on. You know, nobody, whatever happened to if you're going to rob somebody, just get jeans and a T-shirt. No, no, no. None of that crap. They, well, and they're holed up at this cabin in the woods. But you're right. They're just in such a way that anybody's going to look and say mobster. Like, it's, no, no. it's visually all over them. At, at certain scenes, it's supposed to be the nighttime. But it is clearly day. Oh, yeah, and that's that's the Edward Consulting right there. It doesn't matter. Because according to the storyline, it's at night. And they make references to each other about it being nighttime. But it's light as day in the sky when you look at the film. You know, um, and what are the odds that there's a chemist or a geologist up in the woods that I won't give away the ending but he has a combination of chemicals in there that will defeat the alien or the girl, the sheep monster. And you're like, what are the odds of that really happening? You know, like it's it's kind of like a MacGyver situation. Look, look what's in front of us. Let's just create, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I can't give it in all good conscience any more than a five out of ten. But it does have that so bad it's good feel to it. So it's. 
one that I would watch because I know that the listeners of this are probably some pretty car, pretty hardcore sci-fi fans that have seen, you know, everything from Robbie the Robot to Plan Nine. You probably haven't seen the Astounding She Monster, and it is just worth watching to see how the poster is compared to how the movie is. Yeah, yeah, you are. This is a case, and this is a perfect demonstration of of Bill's generosity. Because <laughs> I will, you're right about the certain charm, but it's I don't. I, I love a lot of 50s movies, and I actually love movies that aren't even necessarily good. Like you said, movies that um, they're aiming for something. And I actually enjoy watching a Plan 9 from Outer Space. This one was almost it, – it, it headed into that in some areas, and I think that I appreciated it more when I read about it. Because for one thing, this movie, it was originally planned as a $50,000 production with like seven days to shoot it, right? So think about that. But then – They've come out recently and said, well, you know, the movie actually only cost 18000 to make. <laughs> and he, probably they, po- he probably pocketed the rest. <laughs> well, as I did, they sold it to AIP for 60000 So it's like they and they made it in four days <laughs> so that they could minimize the cost. So it's like, okay, we'll do this for 50000 but we can do it. And it's like, you know, when they give you your per diem and you're like, well, I'll just eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and I'll, I'll take the rest. Yeah. And that's kind of seemingly what happened. But – they minimized by having this uncredited film editor work in his living room, but basically it turned out that the director was the film editor. He was just making it. He was doing it on the fly. So when you take those things into account, you realize that this movie had almost no money. And you're right that it is, it can be enjoyed. It's that charm of, of something so bad, but seemingly everybody involved is, you know, we're just going to do this. We're going to be sincere, and we're going to do this. I just don't think it's as fun to watch as some of the better 50s movies, where you would see, uh, I can think of a movie like The Fiend Without a Face, where there is some artistry going on. There is some interest going on in the way they didn't have a lot of money. They have a silly monster, but it's shot interestingly. This one, again, the most interesting thing about it is that it isn't interesting. Like, that there's no attempt to put any artistic spin like including just the turn of a camera on the scene at all. It's it's just like I know funny, I see the T V guide actually says up there review says this idiotic story written by a three year old. <laughs> Which, and I get and it, you're right, like you talk about those elements like if a three year old or five year old telling the story, yes, everything's conveniently right there. Everything is here, everything's there. But to me it was just it was so bland that it actually became a chore to watch and I wasn't waiting for the next silly scene. For me, honestly it's like a two point five or a three. I'm glad I I was happy you recommended, and I really thought it was like it was a fun thing to watch for this podcast. Although I don't know that I would. I think there are several other bad fifties movies I would send someone out to watch. But if you're the bad movie completist, if you're the person that's like throw at me the worst thing you can find, this is not the worst thing you can find. And it is no. it is charming. You kind of leave it with a goofy smile on your face. But it's pretty bad. It is. Oh, yeah. It's Ed Wood bad without having the kind of weirdo Ed Wood energy that that his movies had. But I do give them credit. They wrote a story that wasn't like every other '50s movie, and I love it just for this fact alone. When they, when we, I learned why she was walking backwards because so I looked at it. And I, I was going to say, please tell this story. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at that when I first saw it, Bill. I was sitting there thinking. So they got her lit up again like a light bulb, and I thought. 
that there's scenes in, in I think, uh, some of Ed Wood's movies, particularly um, Planet Ever Meyer Space, where he tries to have the characters walk like they're zombies, but they kind of keep forgetting what they're doing. So sometimes it's it looks more like they're drunk than that they're zombies. So I was like, so maybe she's walking backwards because they're trying to make her otherworldly. Turns out that on the first day of filming, remember, four days with a super low budget, her costume split open when she bent over on day one and they said so the rest of the film they were directed she could walk into a scene and maybe this is why we don't have any interesting camera angles she could walk into a scene forwards but she had to back out or otherwise she would show her behind to everybody and i that that really you know what that bumps it from a 2.5 to a three right there yeah, go, I was just going to say, in the final scene where there's kind of a final showdown or whatever, she she walks backwards towards the wall, and you're like, why the hell is she walking backwards? Yeah, it's the, the, there's no clue. And then kind of, she doesn't speak, so it's like, it's, yeah, if you, again, if you're the bad movie guru, do check this out, because you're going to want to see it. But anyone going to this thinking, hey, uh, is this a good 50s uh, B movie. It's not. It's a, it's not even a good 50s Z movie, but it is a movie, and it's on Tubi to watch. It's got. A, it's got. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I noticed it has also been picked up on Prime, at least in Canada. So you can watch yeah, it on Prime. I think it's on Prime here too, because I might have actually watched it on Prime. But though it is, it is on Tubi. It's on both of them. I'd love to hear what people think about though, because it is a conversation starter. It's like I'm not telling you not to watch the movie. I'm just telling you don't watch the movie for the purposes of. of being entertained by the movie itself uh, unless in a sort of ironic you know i was gonna say this could lead to a good uh thread on your facebook page of what's your favorite worst movie yeah and what's your favorite so bad it's good movie that's a great idea and i i will definitely do that we're getting the facebook page back up by the time this podcast uh airs actually the Facebook page is up and running, so uh, head over there. And I think that's great. And that I guess that's my issue is I've seen so many bad movies uh, that I can think of ten other bad movies I'd tell you to watch over this one. But, yeah, you kind of have to see the female light bulb walking backwards. It is. It's something. <laughs> it is something. So you're, you're making me want to raise the – Raise it up a little, and I, I, I think say, I better stop. I was I, I was gonna say what my favorite bad movie is, but we can save that for another episode. Yeah, that I think that yeah, that'll be fun. We've got we've gone. Uh, other than that, it's funny because this movie was called. They even named they they were trying to really go out there, and they named it something like uh, the Naked Terror or something. And the censors were like, no, the no, Naked Invader. <laughs> so they had to drop that to please the censor. But but there's nothing in the movie that's remotely you know. Um, you've got the gun mold drinking, but that's about it. One of, one of my most fun scenes in this film is that at one point, there's the two robbers and they have to go outside to deal with the she monster. And they give the drunk woman the gun and say, can you hold the gun straight? Can you keep your eye on the two? <laughs> when they make a deal out of it, right? And then that's the next scene where they're like, why don't you have another drink? Why don't you go get the bottle? <laughs> and, I, and that's where it was like, I, I was thinking I could see Leslie Nielsen, you know? <laughs> you know and, and they're like... No, don't you don't trust the guy. He can't go in the room. But the woman, yeah, she go and get the ball away. <laughs> so I think this is one that's much better watching as like a watch party when you can sit there with other people. It has that mystery science theater vibe to it. But sitting by yourself watching it, it's just not quite as good. You know what you do? You you get your friends and you'll have a tray full of shots of your favorite liquor. And every time you see a production miscue, take a shot. <laughs> 
Yeah, but 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 you're gonna all your friends. Who's gonna turn the movie off because you'll be blacked out <laughs> by the end. So here's the point where we do we'll pick uh for the next and the next uh, VOD roulette. We'll each pick a movie and we'll send out each of us off to watch it. And you, the audience, can watch as well. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. So before we give all the information about where um, Bill, where they can find you, and then I'll give the information about how you can contact the podcast, let's go ahead and tell each other what the movies are. And I think you had said you were going to send me the link and I, I can send you my link as well. And then we can kind of uh, discuss what these next two movies are. And again, at this point, it's kind of, uh, I want to say kind of random in a sense, because we are picking, we're picking movies not based off of this, this next go round off of anything particular theme. Like we did 50s kind of theme this time, but that's not what we're doing this time. So do you have one, Bill, for me? I do have one and it is from 1964. I'm sure you've seen it, but I chose it because of the director. And if people kind of understand I'm coming from a horror point of view, it will click in. And it's 1964's The Earth Dies Screaming. Oh, man. I have seen this, I'm sure, but it and has been a minute, I think. It, it's, like, on, it's only an hour, two minutes, but the director is Terrence Fisher. Awesome. Yeah, so I don't know that I remember this one. Um, like, the title it, is very familiar, and I probably can guarantee you I've seen it, but I the the Earth dies screaming. By the way, is an awesome title, and it it's uh you know the it's the, the Earth has stood still. It's ended. It's done a lot of things, but has it ever died screaming? <laughs> <laughs> and the poster is beautiful. I love the poster for this. That has it looks like the classic kind of alien space ray man with the with the gun laser in his hand and everything and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I want to mention because when I mention my movie, people may think this, but this isn't always going to be <laughs> 1950s and 60s movies. I think um, this is just the bent that we happen to be on at the time. Well, so yeah, but as I said, I chose it because of the director. And for those unfamiliar with the horror genre, Terrence Fisher used to work for a company called Hammer. Productions and yeah. Hammer Productions did a lot of old monster movies. So he did a fi the film The Horror of Dracula. He did The Curse of Frankenstein. He did The Devil Rides Out. Uh, uh, the Gorgon, the, a really he fun. He did The uh, Gorgon. Movie. He did a version of The Phantom of the Opera. Like this guy is to me personally, and this is on the level, is one of the most underrated directors of all time. Very stylish, really nice filmmaking. Like, we're not talking about Edward Schlock. The theme of what was popular in the 50s was this kind of a movie, right? And sometimes you'd have a really good director or a director that would have a unique vision for it do this. And then you'd have somebody who, just like now, you know, every uh, Jaws, there's also a Meg. And then lower than that, there's a Sharknado, you know. Below that, there's a... a the last shark. The last shark, yes. Yeah, that was yeah, one of those right. Jaws ripoffs. So for you, this one, what I had done is I was reading about the movie that we just watched, The Astounding She-Monster. And when The Astounding She-Monster, when it came to theaters in America, it was released on a double bill, which happened a lot, particularly when it went to the drive-in. And it was with a Roger Corman movie. And it's probably one of the longest Roger Corman titles I'm aware of, just in the length of the title itself, not necessarily the movie. This is The Saga of the Viking Women and their voyage to the waters of the Great Sea Serpent. Uh, you, you had better send me that link. I can't write that whole day. 
Yes, right. Uh, also known as the Viking women, the sea serpent, because somebody looked at that and said, you know what? Nobody's going to ask for a ticket to that. And I guess that that's sort of uh, the, the kind of deal when you have a movie like this and it's playing on a double bill. And particularly if it's a drive in, you just buy your ticket for whatever show in that night. Right. And do you really care? So, but, so is this a Roger Corman produced or directed? Well, that's the cool part is just like we have Terrence Fisher on this movie. This is a Roger Corman directed. And, and one of the best parts of this one is, again, this is 65 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And that, I think that was one of the things that's interesting, you know, about these movies. We were talking about how the Stanley She Monster feels like a uh, Twilight Zone episode. It ain't much longer than a Twilight Zone episode. No, not really. You get rid of the commercials, and that's what you get. Yeah. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, again, we will we'll, we'll have you back, and we will be talking about this movie, this the Viking Women and the Sea Serpent, and the blah, 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 blah title. And uh, then we'll also be talking about the Earth Die Screaming, which I'm looking forward to both of them. So, Bill, where else can uh, people find you if they're looking to, uh, to hear a little bit more of your reviews and your uh, podcasts? Well, I'll let them know. I just wanted to know, let them know that if they like Roger Corman, Tubi has a series of Roger Corman little docs on a theme for each episode. I think there's 10 of them. And it's called Cult-tastic, Tales from the Trenches with Roger and Julie Corman. And they're about 45 minutes each. And they go by the theme of monster movies, alien movies, uh, uh, murder mysteries. And so they're a really interesting watch. So it's cheapest chips to watch and it and it's a really interesting one and he, if you and want to always a fun guy to hear talk like oh, he can talk about film forever and uh, and the business he's sharp as a tack you can ask him about a movie from 1957 and he can tell you what he used for makeup like he's just got one of those memories that you can and the other part of it is, is i never realized how much his wife julie got involved in it she was oh, running yeah. the show half the time it was fascinating so i don't want to go on too much about it but Look it up on Tubi. If they want to hear me, I'm uh, one of the co-hosts. I'm number three in the Land of the Creeps with the awesome Greg Amortis, Greg Morgan, and the Dr. Shock, Dave Becker. He's a mountain of knowledge and uh, a mountain, a fountain. He's got a lot of knowledge in there of movies. And uh, I was just on an episode of Retro Movie Geek with Joel, Peter, and Daryl, where we talked about the movie Moving Violations. Sometimes I'm on uh, with Pastor Matt and his son Jackson, and father and son watch horror. And you can find me at any time on Facebook, or I'm on Letterboxd, and I'm also randomly choosing movies on Tubi. So that's what I'm probably going to be doing tomorrow. <laughs> awesome. And all those podcasts are a lot of fun. Um uh, Father and Son Watch Horror just did a episode uh, where they were talking about gateway horror, kids horror, and um, we kind of ran out of time here, but I, I know that uh, Ghostbusters and Gremlins both had their 35th or something like that anniversaries this year, 36 maybe. It was, it was fun to hear them. They were talking about Gremlins and uh, Monster House and a few other movies on there, so that's a lot of fun. I love the Moving Violations episode you did. That was I, awesome. I, I, ju I just want to make sure I get the plug-in for Jay and Jay versus Horror on his YouTube channel. And uh, Nathan is on as much as I am. And we have horror challenges. We do movie reviews. We talk about the video nasties. So look up Jay Wall and Jay versus Horror, and it's well worth a watch.
Oh yeah, Jay's got a ton of stuff going on over there, and um, building a little uh, community uh, with with horror movies and stuff, and a lot of fun. And Jay, actually, we were talking right before this episode. Jay's going to be on here soon too, as well. Bill, it was a great time having you on. Uh, for anyone who wants to to get in touch, we have a Facebook page. We're over on Twitter at Phantom Galaxy, and uh, again, drop over there. I'm going to put something on the Facebook page and on Twitter, reaching out to get your suggestions for any uh, future episodes. And uh, we will have the next episode will be kind of a solo episode about, you know, 20, 30 minutes, just of some of the things that are currently new release. Anything else? Uh, catch this podcast over at Apple Podcast. Please go over there and leave us a review. Check us out. And that uh, that's it. We're back. And Bill, thanks again. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back anytime you want me. Okay. And that concludes our very first episode our very first return episode thank you so much for joining me and the music you're listening to tonight both the opening and the closing music is brought to you by aries beats aries beats is a german musician who's creating some very cool stuff in the world of synth pop and you can find him over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com you can check out a lot of his music there he's got some great stuff i encourage you to do that so until next time we are the phantom galaxy signing out